Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would fill this place, fill our hearts, accomplish the purposes you have for us through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I looked up some of the worst traffic jams recorded and found two that were particularly amusing to me. In Bethel, New York in 1969 at the Woodstock Festival, there was a 20-mile traffic jam that lasted for three days. There was 500,000 people descended at the Woodstock Festival for three days of peace and music. Things got so bad that a lot of people just abandoned their cars and just went on foot. In Beijing, China in 2010, there was a 62-mile traffic jam that lasted for three days, and it was partially caused by a fleet of heavy trucks ironically carrying construction supplies to ease, for road work to ease congestion. Traffic jams can be annoying. Uh, we don't like to wait. Lines can be annoying. We don't like to wait because they often feel like a, a waste of time. We feel like we could be doing something more productive rather than just sit there for things to happen. This is the second message in a three-part series on the book of Habakkuk. And right now, Habakkuk is waiting in traffic. He feels like he's going somewhere, but not moving very fast. Chapter 1, last week, we looked at the questions of how long and why, when Habakkuk was really wrestling with the problem of evil and the problem of delay. We saw that when God makes no sense to me, we must turn to God and press on in prayer. And God's answer to Habakkuk is Habakkuk looked to God and said, what are you going to do about the evil in the nation of Judah? God's answer was that judgment and destruction were going to come on the entire nation, not just on those who were wicked. And God's answer raises more questions. There's more questions than answers. Because evil, the evil in the nation of Judah, is going to be defeated by a greater evil. But then what about the greater evil? What about the greater evil of the Babylonians? God seems to be taking care of the first problem, but he has created a new problem. God has created a bigger problem. It's like if we were to ask God to fix the problems with the U.S. government. You know, we've got problems ourselves, right? We've got corruption, we've got gridlock, we've got proud leaders. But what if we ask God to fix the problem and God's answer was, you know, your problem with the U.S. government and, my, and this is my solution. I'm going to send ISIS to come take you over. You know, ISIS will now be your new government. We think, okay, well, the first problem was bad, but that solution is going to be a whole lot worse. And that's where we find Habakkuk. Habakkuk is in stunned silence because God's solution seems to be a whole lot worse than the original problem. So that's where we find Habakkuk. He is waiting and listening by faith. And what we learn from chapter 2 is really the essence of following Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is Habakkuk speaking. He says, I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. We don't know how long Habakkuk has been waiting. But he's a prophet, so he's waiting to hear from God. He's waiting for God to give an answer. But he's doing it with a posture of faith. 
Habakkuk is standing, he's looking out, he's waiting for God to give his answer. And this is what God's people have done throughout the ages. Take, for example, King David in Psalm 62, verses 5 and 6. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Risen Hope Church, is God our rock and salvation, our fortress? If so, let us live by faith, trust in our mighty rock at all times, and look to him. And so while Habakkuk waits and waits, he's sitting in traffic, finally there's a breakthrough, and God gives him a second answer. In verses 2 through 20, God reveals his plan for the wicked Babylonians. God tells Habakkuk that the Babylonians will be punished in their time, but the righteous will live by faith. And God shows that he is a God of justice. God is too pure to look at evil. God won't be silent when the wicked swallow up those who are less wicked. The Babylonians will be punished and destroyed. And that's a comfort for Habakkuk and the rest of us. We know that the wicked prosper, but they don't do so forever. Every wicked nation, no matter how strong or how powerful they seem, won't last forever. They're ultimately destroyed. I mean, think about our own recent history. Nazi Germany was defeated. Communist Russia disintegrated. And yes, the Babylonian Empire, this wicked, wicked Babylonian Empire will be destroyed. But I can't help to think about our own nation, America, and how we might seem progressive and sophisticated, but we're a nation that's evil in, in many ways, evil in God's eyes, where power is abused. I can't help but wonder, will we get away? And this message that Habakkuk receives from God, this vision, is a message for the ages. God tells Habakkuk to write it down on tablets, on carved tablets, so he can spread this vision through the whole nation. How many people still watch or listen to the State of the Union address? Well, the president in this address, he talks about what's been going on in the nation and what lies ahead. And President Obama, in his most recent address, talked about improving the political system by changing it. President Obama said, if we want better politics, it's not enough to change a congressman, a senator, or even a president. We have to change the system to reflect our better selves. 31 million people watched President Obama give his address. That might sound like a lot, but you have to remember, over 100 million people watched the Super Bowl, a sporting event that really has no lasting impact for this nation. And Habakkuk is delivering an important State of the Union address for the nation of Judah about the future of Judah and Babylon. But sadly, not that many people are interested. I mean, you know that Judah really ignored God's word. And before God goes into the doom and destruction, the judgment that's coming for the wicked Babylonians, God prepares the listener for how to hear the vision, how to listen to his message. God's really giving an instruction manual. I don't know about you, but I don't like instruction manuals. I mean... I get a box of something. I want to tear that thing open. I want to get started right away. 
Who cares about instruction manuals? Instruction manuals are such a waste of time. But instruction manuals are given for a reason. That's so that you can avoid foolish and stupid mistakes. So you don't put the part into the wrong hole and you don't completely destroy what you're trying to assemble. And in his instruction manual, God is telling his people that this isn't just a news report to be forgotten. That it isn't just interesting info to score points for trivial pursuit. In his instructions, God is telling his people that we must respond to his vision, to what he is laying out for us. That God's word is different from a newspaper or an online news article that we could just toss in the recycle bin or just forget later, thinking that it doesn't affect us. God's word does affect us. And Judah, when it heard God's word, should have repented and turned away from its evil. And in the same way, we must respond to God's word. And so in his instruction manual, God gives us two important instructions before going into his vision. He first tells us that God's plan takes place in God's time. God's place takes, takes, takes place in God's time. And second, there are two different responses to his vision that lead to two different outcomes. Two ways to respond that lead to two different outcomes. The path of the righteous, a path of faith, or the path of the wicked, the path of pride. So first, God is telling his people that God's plan takes place in God's time. Look at verse 3. For still the vision, the message, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Before God answers Habakkuk's questions, what are you going to do about those wicked Babylonians that are coming to conquer us? God is addressing the issues of the heart because what goes on inside of us is more important than what goes on outside of us. Where, where is God calling you, calling me, to live by faith, to live with patience as we wait in traffic? For me, for many years, I've desired to be a pastor, desired to be ordained, I feel like, you know, I've done the readings, the papers, the tests, the evaluations, and I want to be a pastor, I want to be ordained now. But God's teaching me that he has a plan, he has a process, and I need to trust him with the timing. What is that for you? Uh, where is God calling you to wait for your dreams and hopes, wait for that job or spouse or children, waiting for relief? from cancer or pain or injustice, and really wait by faith. We don't like waiting. We don't like waiting in traffic or waiting in lines because it can just feel so unproductive. But here God is showing us that waiting is really an act of faith because for the nation of Judah, things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better. In chapter 1, we know that the nation is going to be punished by those wicked Babylonians before the wicked Babylonians will be punished. P.C. Craigie says, the apparent lack of divine action, which may cause faith to falter, is only our inability to perceive the timing of divine action. Church, faith means trusting in God's plan that will, carry it out, that will be carried out in God's time and faith means giving up trying to perceive the timing of divine action. Go back to verse 3 and notice the number of times it 
The pronoun it is used. It referring to God's vision, God's plan, God's plan of judgment and salvation. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Waiting for Godot was a French play written in 1948. In, in the play, there's two characters, Vladimir and Estragon. And they're walking along a country road, and there's a single tree there. And Vladimir, tired, he pulls off boot off his aching feet and says, nothing to be done. They talk and bicker for a while. Estragon wants to leave. But Vladimir reminds them that they're supposed to wait for this person, this unspecified person named Godot. The problem is they can't agree when Godot will come, where he's coming, when he's coming, what he looks like. And he's always coming tomorrow. He's always coming tomorrow, but never shows up. And so during their anti-adventures, they meet people, they talk, they talk some more, they get so bored, they talk about killing themselves. And it just feels so pathetic. If you've read the play, it just, the dialogue and the story just drags on and on because nothing is really happening. They're not going anywhere. And it seems so meaningless as they sit there and wait for Godot to show up, but he never shows up. The ending is rather anticlimactic. But the point is, what do we do when we're waiting? When we're waiting, how do we find meaning when we're waiting for something and it hasn't come yet? Do you ever feel like that? That you're waiting, but you're not seeing any progress. You feel like your waiting is so pointless. Do you ever feel like waiting for God is like those two characters waiting for Godot? Well, if you ever feel that way, we need to remember who God is. We have to remember that unlike Godot, God has come and will come again. That God came for Abraham for Noah, for Moses, God came for the Israelites in the wilderness and in the land of Canaan. And for the Christian, God has come for us in the person of Jesus Christ and will come again. And unlike Godot, God has entered into a covenant with us, made promises, has kept those promises, and will continue to keep those promises until the end. And that requires faith as we wait. Let's take a look, closer look at verse 3. Every time you see the pronoun it, replace it with the word vision. So look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It, or the vision, hastens to the end. The vision will not lie. If the vision seems slow, wait for the vision. There's two ways to read that pronoun it. You could read it like it's like you have it in your Bible. It refers to the Lord's vision. But the second option is that the pronoun it refers to the Lord himself. So the pronoun could refer to the Lord, to the Lord Yahweh, to God himself and not the vision. If you go with this second option, that means instead of the vision will surely come, the vision will not delay, it would mean Yahweh will surely come. Yahweh will not delay. That's how the writer of Hebrews, that's the option taken by the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, 37 to 39. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So instead of the vision, it's the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who 
shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The writer of Hebrews takes Habakkuk 2.4 and applies it directly to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. In the original, in the original, Habakkuk applies it to the vision, like the vision will surely come. The vision will not delay. God's plan happens according to God's time. But in the book of Hebrews, the coming one, the coming one will come and will not delay. And that applies to the Messiah. It means well, as we wait for the Lord to come, we look beyond ourselves, our circumstances, and our unanswered questions and trust completely in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. But there's a warning as well because those who shrink back are destroyed, but those who have faith preserve their souls. And this really gets to the heart of the book of Habakkuk, the heart of the Christian life. The righteous shall live by faith. See, God is working out his plan of salvation, and there's two ways we can respond to his vision, to his plan. There's the puffed-up soul and pride, and there's the righteous who live by faith. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Behold, his soul, the soul of the Babylonian empire, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is so important because for Habakkuk, God's plan, his vision, doesn't seem to make much sense. Contradicts his logic. M.J. Erickson writes, Because God is a punisher of the godless and the rewarder of life for the righteous, it is enough for Habakkuk to let God be God and live in humble trust in him. Faith means letting God be God and living in humble trust in him, knowing and believing and resting in the fact that God is right, that his plan and his time is perfect, and that he is God and we are not. The opposite of faith is pride and self-reliance, going to God and saying, no, thank you. I got this. I can figure it out on my own. Pride comes in the form of self-sufficiency where we just do our best and hope God will let us into heaven. Pride comes in the form of self-indulgence where instead of turning to God, we find salvation in the pleasures of this life. Charles Blondin was the probably the greatest tightrope walker in the world. And in June 1859, he became the first man to cross the Niagara Fall on only a rope. The rope suspended 1,100 feet across and 160 feet above the raging waters with no net and no harness. One slip and then he would fall to his death. But Blondin doesn't just walk across the rope. He does some pretty cool and amazing stuff. He gets on stilts and walks across the falls. He picks up his manager and carries him piggyback across the Niagara Falls. And not only that, he takes a wheelbarrow, loads it with 350 pounds of cement, puts it in the wheelbarrow, and pushes it across the Niagara Falls. And, and then he asks a cheering crowd, do you think I could push a man across the Niagara Falls? And there's a loud roar as a crowd just cheers him. And then he goes to one particular man and says, Sir, do you think I could carry you across in this wheelbarrow? And he says, Yes. And Blondin tells him, Get in. He refused. He refused. You see, 
It's, it's one thing to believe that Blondin can carry you across the Niagara Falls in that wheelbarrow. But it's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow yourself and let him carry you across. It's one thing to agree in our mind that, yes, what God's word says is true. But it's another thing to stake your life upon it, to be all in, to entrust your soul to this God, to our creator. And this is where God draws a line in the sand. He shows us who is righteous and who isn't. In chapter 1, the focus was on morality. You had the wicked who were oppressing the righteous. But on chapter 2, the focus is really not on morality, but our response to this vision. The righteous believe and trust God's message of salvation and judgment, turn to him and entrust their lives to this God. And this message that was given to Judah, this message of salvation through judgment, anticipates the gospel, what God will accomplish through Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by his faith is so critical to New Testament faith that's actually quoted two times, two additional times, Romans 1 and Galatians 3. Romans 1.16 and 17 says, this is the Apostle Paul, for I'm, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's a powerful summary of the whole book of Romans. And central to Romans is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We have to remember that God requires perfect righteousness and holiness. But all have sinned and fall short of his glory. None is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And if we were to try to enter heaven on our own, we would be denied. It'd be like walking up to a metal detector with a gun strapped to your side. You might feel more secure because at any time you have your gun and you could defend yourself. But you would never make it through. You have to give up your gun give up your self-defense. And in the same way, we have to give up our own righteousness and entrust ourselves to the righteousness of another, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we see the similar theme in Galatians chapter 3. We see that in God's courtroom of justice, on that final day of judgment, when we all stand before our Creator, we see that none of us will be there because of what we've done, or any goodness in us, but because of Christ. Galatians 3, 11 and 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. God's law, we read about it this morning in our confession. God's law, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. God's law has no saving power. It only shows us that we are dead and condemned and guilty. The law shows us that we are lawbreakers. And that's why the righteous have to live by faith and trust in another, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is where, again, we see that living by faith is the opposite of pride and self-reliance. The soul of the puffed-up one doesn't wait for the vision, doesn't wait for God, doesn't believe God's plan. The puffed-up one dies because of his pride, but the righteous 
live by faith. And so those are the instructions, that, those are the key instructions, the instruction manual that God's given to Habakkuk and to his people before he goes into his plan, his vision. And so after this call to faith, God reveals his plan for the Babylonians. And he shows that he'll act consistent with his character, that even though justice might be delayed, justice is never, ever denied. In this section, we see five woes or five judgments. We see that these wicked Babylonians won't get away. And we see that the victims of violence, those victims will rise up and ridicule the oppressors in a rather ironic way. Normally, laments are reserved for victims. But now, the tables are turned, and these laments are uttered against the victors, against those powerful Babylonians. These laments are songs of justice. These five woes are prophetic songs rooted in the justice of God. And these woes are a, are, are a comfort today for all victims of crime and oppression and violence because one day those victims will rise up against those perpetrators. Those 60 million unborn babies that were slaughtered in, the mo- in their mother's womb because of abortion will one day rise up against this country. All victims of crime and injustice and police brutality will one day rise up against the oppressors. And that brings comfort to us today. We know that God will one day repay what Babylon and what the evildoers did to others. And in these five woes, we see that God's justice, God's holiness is revealed. We see that the righteous are vindicated. We see that the wicked are destroyed. And we see that the soul of the puffed up one is humbled. This election year, I couldn't help but notice uh, how, how the leaders on both sides of the party t- just talk about American pride, American exceptionalism, that somehow this nation is special and unique. And it's that type of pride that God condemns. In the first woe, God condemns the Babylonians for ruthlessly plundering other nations. Look at verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. So the plunderer will be plundered. In the second and third woes, God condemns the Babylonians for how they built and enriched themselves at the expense of other people. They heaped up wealth and built these fortified cities And they seem so powerful and invincible. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4.30 about his own building projects. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And if you were to visit Babylon thousands of years ago, it would have seemed impressive. I mean, you walk up to it, there's eight decorated, ornamented gates that lead into the city. Wide, well-kept streets, dozens of temples, and then Nebuchadnezzar's own palace with walls 136 feet thick. The Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But this is what one commentator said, puts it so well. Babylon's magnificent palaces... Its costly temples, its grand processional street, rouse the awe and wonder of all visitors. 
and its mountain-high walls forced upon them the impossibility of conquering the city. Yet the Lord Jehovah was unimpressed by Babylon's strength and grandeur. He saw only the blood of untold numbers of people who were slaughtered in ruthless warfare, which made these buildings possible. He saw only the iniquity, the perversity, the crookedness of the builders. Yahweh was unimpressed by Babylon's strength and grandeur, and the day of reckoning would come for those who built with iniquity, perversity, and crookedness. Look at verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Those who save their life will lose it. And even creation will testify against these wicked builders. Look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. And this is so ironic because Nebuchadnezzar, to showcase his power, glory, and greatness, had his name inscribed on every single brick that was used to build his palace. But we see here that even the bricks, even the stone, even the wood would testify against the iniquity of the wicked Babylonian builders. And all these accomplishments, all the greatness would be wiped out and go up in smoke. On November 9th, November 9, 1872, was a quiet Saturday night in downtown Boston. Most shops and businesses were closed. Three businesses occupied the three-story Klaus building in the downtown financial district. Inside were dry goods, neckties, hoop skirts, and boxes and boxes of inventory stacked from floor to ceiling, filling up every last space. The building was a giant pile of kindling, just waiting for a single spark to set everything on fire. And that's what happened. In the basement of the Klaus building, a spark from a coal-fired steam broiler set a box of hoop skirts on fire. And the fire quickly spread, and it was sucked through the elevator shaft. And in five minutes, the entire three-story building was a raging inferno. And the granite of the Klaus building became so hot that it set fire to a building across the street simply because of its heat. And these two buildings across from each other, as they began to burn with huge intensity, became a wind of heat. As, as a 16-mile-an-hour backdraft generated embers and cinders everywhere. And by the time the Great Boston Fire was done, most of the entire downtown was gone. 65 acres... 800 buildings had gone up in smoke. Thousands of jobs lost. Hundreds of businesses shut down. And dozens of insurance companies just went bankrupt. The Great Boston Fire gives us some idea of the coming Babylonian judgment. Look at verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And Jeremiah, who was a fellow prophet with Habakkuk, puts it this way. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing, and the nations weary themselves only for fire. So all that military might, all that financial might, all that political might and pride will go up in flames. 
It's fascinating to see how God's glory is seen in the destruction of Babylon. That God's glory is revealed in his judgment against sin. You look at the middle of the third woe. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the middle of these judgments, these five woes, these five judgments against the Babylonians, God reminds us that his overarching purpose in creation, in salvation, and judgment is that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Hell is a topic that's fallen on hard times, and it's just unpopular. I mean, our cult, people in our culture like to say things like this. My God would never send anyone to hell. My God is a God of love. God is a God of love. He's shown that to us in Christ. But judgment and hell are real, and it's through judgment that God says, then they will know that I am the Lord. And those who have ignored and disobeyed and hated God will one day come face to face with the God that they have ignored, disobeyed, and hated. One theologian writes, if we have fully understood who and what God is, we will see him as the supreme being. He is the almighty and loving Lord. He has created us, not we him. And we exist for his glory not he for ours. We will stand before him in the last judgment, not he before us. And this vision of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea should build our faith, encourage us to live by faith, because we know at the very end, God's kingdom will come, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not just some blind optimism. The blind optimism of this culture, which says, I hope things will get better. I took a seminary class with a professor named Dr. Oliphant, and he, he told our class that when his mother was nearing death, he had to call credit card companies and banks and other companies and close different accounts because mother was going to pass on. And he told us that he could always tell who was a Christian on the other end of the phone and who wasn't. Christians could offer hope in times of trial. Others couldn't. He talked about this one lady on the other line, on the other side of the phone, who just simply stopped mid-sentence when she, when, he heard, when she heard that his mother was passing away. And all she could say was, I hope. Um, I hope. And she just stopped. There was nothing that she could offer. No comfort, no hope. And this world offers no hope or blind hope. But when we see that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that fills us with sure and certain hope. And even though this verse is in a section on judgment, Habakkuk is likely quoting from Isaiah 11, which was written a hundred years earlier. And in Isaiah 11, the emphasis on, is on the peace and pr prosperity of the future messianic kingdom. The nursing, Isaiah 11, 8 and 9, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe condemns the, the sexual immorality 
the Babylonians. As they degraded and abused others, they will be shamed and punished. And again, this is a comfort for victims of sexual crime. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, and nothing is hidden from his sight. And as the Babylonians got drunk on sexual perversity, they'll be stripped and shamed one day. The fifth woe condemns the idolatry of the Babylonians. This gets to one of the main reasons why we don't live by faith. And that's because of idolatry. It can be so much easier to serve an idol, serve something you create, to make up a God that you worship, and to make up your own moral standard to go with it. My God likes what I like. My God hates what I hate. That can be so much easier than living by faith. Look at verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Or its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Look at that last phrase. For its maker trusts in his own creation. It's easy to worship the creation rather than the creator. To worship God's gifts rather than God himself. And the Babylonians were guilty of worshiping idols. Worshiping their own fishing net. Worshiping their own source of power. And we do the same thing ourselves in our, in our country. We can give credit rather than to God to our intelligence, our wealth, logic, strength, military might, abilities, tenacity, problem-solving skills. We can begin to think how great we are. But this is what James Bruckner says. We do not need a shrine in order to worship God's gifts. They are worshipped every time we rely on them without reference to God. Every time we are proud of our own accomplishments without noticing their source. Every time we take credit without thanksgiving. And every time we gain wealth by taking advantage of another. The woes are to remind everyone who achieves something in life to continue to live by faith and not to enter the woes of the puffed up life. But idolatry is not just worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Pluralism can be a form of idolatry. This, this idea that every God, every religion, every way, every path is equally valid and equally correct. There is only one God, and he is the true God, the living God, the everlasting God, the God of the Bible. He is God, and there is no other. There's none like him, and his glory he will give to no other. And those who worship creation, those who worship a false God, will one day be condemned by the creator. As we end the chapter, we see that, once again, things come back around full circle. At the beginning, we saw Habakkuk was standing at the watchpost, waiting by faith for God to give an answer. But in verse 20, look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So not just Habakkuk, not just the people of God, but, but the whole world will one day stand in silence before God. One day keep silence before him. And it is in, it's in this context of waiting, waiting in traffic, waiting for God, that our greatest need is to live by faith. And that's the epitome of righteousness. The righteous shall live by faith. But if we know ourselves, we also know that it's our greatest inability 
it's so easy for us to fall and falter and stumble and to just take our eyes off Christ, to not live by faith, to, to live on our own, to live a life of self-sufficiency or self-indulgence. But church, let's remember that the good news is that God gave us his son, one who always submitted to the Father, one who always lived by faith, one who never weakened, never turned back, never complained. Jesus obeyed until the end, giving up his life. Jesus was the righteous one who always lived by faith so that we could too. So I don't want you coming away from this message thinking, well, I, I, I just have to try harder. I have to force myself to live by faith because Jesus has done it for you. In his perfect obedience, his death, he became a sin substitute for us for all the times that we failed to live by faith. He did it for us. And it's stunning for us to think how all those judgments against wicked Babylon actually fell on Christ. Christ was never plundered. He never plundered others, but he was plundered, stripped of his dignity and honor. Christ never tried to save his life, but he lost it. Christ never tried to build himself up at the expense of others, but he was torn down. Christ never worshipped anything in creation, but he was condemned and judged by the creator for our sins. 